All right. Well, I already messed up Joseph and Daniela, so we should go ahead and get started. That's my bad. Um, we are going to be in Mark 4 again today, looking at the parables of the kingdom. Last week, we looked at most of the first 20 verses. Remember, we looked at uh, the, the parable itself as Jesus went through and explained in the first nine verses the, uh, the sower and the four soils. And then we went and we looked at the explanation starting in verse 13. And I had planned to go back to verses 10 through 12 at the end, and we ran out of time. So that's where I want to start this morning, looking at uh, that center section, verses 10 through 12, and then we'll jump past the explanation of the, the parable of the sower and the soils. But as we mentioned last week, that's going to be key to understanding the rest of the parables. So we'll go ahead and take a look at that. But let's start off with a word of prayer, and then we'll jump into Mark 4.10. God, we thank you once again for your word, that your word is truth, that your word is holy, that we can rely on your word. We pray that you would give us insight into what it is that you have uh, given to us and preserved for us, and that we would be able to take and apply this to our lives and to share it with others. God, give us understanding. Give us uh, a heart that longs for you. God, we want to, to hunger and thirst for your righteousness and pray that you would give us that, that desire within ourselves and uh, just that your name would be high and lifted up this morning. Pray this in your name. Amen. All right. So again, we looked at last week, we had um, primarily four different types of soils, right? We had the soil that was laid on the path or the roadway that was taken up by the birds. We had the soil that was on the, um, it had rock underneath and there was seed that was cast on top of that soil, and it didn't really take deep root. And then the soil uh, that was laden with thorns, and the seeds were, were caught up in the thorns once they started to, to grow. And then there was um, three different types of, of soil that the good seed, or that all the seed is good, that seed landed on that was identified as good soil, some yielding fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. And so... Um, again, in the middle of that explanation, or I guess prior to the explanation, after the parable, we have this little, little intersection starting in verse 10. And it says, as soon as he was alone, that is, as soon as Jesus was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But to those who are outside, those who are outside get everything in parables so that while seeing they may see and not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand. Otherwise they might return and be forgiven. And then verse 13 says, And he said to them, Do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? So again, understanding that first parable is of utmost importance for understanding the subsequent parables as well. <clears throat> but notice, first of all, in, in verse 10, that uh, this takes place in a different setting from when Jesus was actually giving this parable initially amongst the, the crowds, amongst multitudes. It says as soon as he was alone, he gave an explanation. And also that he gave this explanation not just to the 12, but to his followers along with the 12. So he had the 12 disciples, and then remember he had other disciples who were uh, separate from the 12. And Jesus was giving an explanation to this larger group of disciples, but not in... The, the presence of everybody. They had gone off to a separate location, and that's where Jesus was giving an explanation of the parables. It says that they were asking him about 
the parables. Uh, here he gives especially the explanation of the sower and the soils. So it seems like they were asking about that parable in particular, but they were asking about other parables as well. And I'm sure they got answers to these other parables as well. But this is the one that we find ourselves in right now that uh, was recorded for us, a parable of the, the sower and the soils and Jesus' explanation of it. And we see here in verse 11 that he makes a, a clear distinction between these two different groups. He says that he was saying to them, to you, again to the twelve and to his other disciples or other followers, to you it has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are on the outside, everything is in parables. So here, Jesus is starting to, he's drawing lines. He's making distinctions. He's saying, you guys get the, the truth. You guys get the, the revelation, the understanding. But to everybody else, they are on the outside. He even uses that, that language of inside and outside. You guys are insiders. And so you guys get this, this understanding, this revelation. These other guys, they are on the outside. Uh, this is really similar to what Jesus says in Matthew twelve thirty, where he says, if, if you're not with me, you're against me. If uh, you don't gather, then you're scattering. And so you have to um, either find yourself in one of those camps, either on the inside or on the outside. And again, Jesus is only giving his revelation to those who are on the inside. And it says that this revelation is pertaining to this mystery. To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. And remember, mystery means something that was uh, hidden in the Old Testament. It wasn't... Uh, revealed, and in the New Testament it is revealed. It's something that God has shown and, and made manifest in the New Testament, um, and it's being revealed, it's being made known to this group of 12 and the other disciples, and it's uh, pertaining in particular the, the kingdom of God, and we'll get farther into the, the kingdom of God as we go throughout this lesson. What are some of the things that we've learned about the kingdom of God up until this point? The kingdom of God. Is that something that has happened? Is that something that was before Jesus? What do we know about the kingdom? The most important thing we know is that it has a king, and that is Jesus. Yeah, and so... Jesus' ministry was talking about how the kingdom is at hand, right? Uh, if you remember back in verses 14 and 15, that's kind of the, the summary of Jesus' ministry of chapter 1, sorry. So Mark 1, 14 and 15 says that after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee and he was preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So the kingdom of God was there. The king was there. And we've talked before about how there's a, a future aspect of the kingdom as well. So there's an, an already not yet aspect that the king is here, and yet his kingdom is not of this world. He's going to one day establish a, a physical kingdom on this earth that's going to last a thousand years. But that's in the future. And so there's this already not yet aspect to the kingdom. And we'll see a little bit of that as we go throughout this, this study. But this is the mystery that Jesus is saying is being revealed to his disciples while simultaneously being concealed from those who are on the outside, those who are not meant to, um, to understand this parable. 
So we do see that this parable serves as a judgment of sorts for the outsiders. Those who are on the outside, they're not meant to understand. They're not given the explanation. They're not given the benefit of knowing what it is that Jesus is explaining to those who are on the inside. Um, And this is to serve as the express purpose of them remaining blind, unable to to come back to God, unable unable to understand and fully comprehend. Uh, That's why it says in verse 12, it starts off saying, so that this is the purpose of the parables being given, so that while seeing, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. That's not what Jesus wants for them. That's a little bit shocking to our ears, perhaps, that Jesus wants them to remain on the outside. He wants them to uh, not come to him and not to be forgiven. Um, this would include, in, in large part, the nation of Israel, the nation of Israel that had rejected Jesus up until this point, the nation of Israel that, as we had talked about in the past, have attributed to Jesus the hit to Jesus' power and his, his miracles. They had attributed that to the power of Satan. They said that you cast out demons by the power of demons. And now Jesus is saying, well, you guys are, you're on the outside. These revelations, these understandings of these parables are not for you. This language comes straight from Isaiah 6. Isaiah 6, verses 8 through 10 says, Isaiah talking, he says, Then I heard a voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then Isaiah said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their hearts dull and their eyes dim. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. And... I forgot to throw that up on the screen for you. But uh, that's what Isaiah 6, 8 says, uh, 8 through 10, talking about the purpose of Isaiah going out. He's going out and he's going to preach to these people, but with the express purpose of them not seeing and not, well, they do see, but they don't understand. They don't perceive. And they do hear, but they don't understand. And again, in fact, they do not return and be healed. This is the, the purpose for which Isaiah was sent out. Uh, this is the, the purpose for which Jesus is speaking in parables here in Mark chapter 4. And perhaps you're wondering how these people can um, be exposed to the truth of God's word, how they can be exposed to this seed and turn away from this seed. That's the language that's used in, in Mark 4, or how they can fall away from the seed, how they can be fruitless if, in fact, God's word is God's word. He has told us that his word will never return void. Well, how can this be if these people are uh, falling away, if they are um, not, again, bearing fruit? Well, that verse comes from Isaiah 55, 11. I'll read the, the whole verse for you. It says that my word will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. So we have to understand, I think we have this misconception oftentimes that uh, God sends out his word with the, the expectation that everybody's going to grasp onto his word and, and embrace his word. This says it, it will not return void without accomplishing what God desired and without succeeding in the matter for which he had sent it. And right before that, um, in Isaiah 55, 
it says that his thoughts are not our thoughts, nor are his ways our ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are his ways higher than our ways, and so are his thoughts higher than our thoughts. And so we might have a, a difficult time holding on to this, this doctrine. It is a, a difficult doctrine to, to understand that God is sending out his word, and it's not going to return to him without accomplishing that for which he had sent it to accomplish, knowing that he had dual purposes for which he had sent it out, um, for, um, for bringing some in to, to repentance, and also for judgment's sake. Um, and at this point, we just have to fall back on the words of, of Romans 9 and say, okay, well, um, who are you, a man, to, to question God, to talk back to God? We, we don't really have any position to, to question God. We're not in that position. And uh, it can be a, a difficult truth to swallow, but uh, Proverbs 16.4 says that the Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. And we have to recognize that this also brings glory to God, that God is glorified in demonstrating his attributes of uh, justice and wrath and anger, just as he is glorified in demonstrating his attributes of mercy and love and grace. Those are all equally attributes of God, and God is glorified when he's demonstrating those attributes. And that's what's going on here in Mark 4 when he is giving these parables for this dual purpose, that some would see and be saved and be drawn to him, and others would be confused and not see and not understand, lest they would come to him and be forgiven. That's kind of his, his purpose there. And so some, some takeaways that we should have from not just those verses, 10 through 12, but this whole section of the parable of the sower and the soils. Uh, we should praise God that he has allowed us to receive the seed as his word, realizing that that's not a privilege that has been given to everybody. In fact, some eyes have been, again, intentionally closed. Some ears have been um, stopped, some hearts hardened, so they will not return and be saved. We should be faithful to sow his seed indiscriminately, praising him for any fruit and expecting that some will reject it, others will fall away, and to not grow weary of well-doing which can be a, a temptation uh, when you are out there and you're, you're telling people, this is my God, this is my Savior, this is what he's done for me, and people turn around and they reject that, or they embrace a, a different Christ or a God of their own, own understanding, and it can be easy for us to grow discouraged in that. But if we realize that God has a purpose for what he's doing, that he is the one who has uh, prepared the soils, then that will affect the, the attitude that we have in response to our evangelizing. And then also we should glorify God for all of his work, recognizing that his ways are higher, better, pure and righteous, and we shouldn't stand in judgment over God. Uh, God forbid that we stand there and tell God what he should do or how he should do something. He, and he alone is God. So before we move on to verse 21, any thoughts or questions on those first 20 verses in that parable? Yes. Well, we have to also not be proud in our own minds. Yes. Getting judgy against God because those people were there in Jesus' presence and they, they could have been following him and they could have become disciples by following along with him and then they would have heard 
mm -hmm. they chose to let him go while they went about their own more important business. We are guilty, we are justly guilty of ignoring what God has set in front of us. Absolutely. Every man. man is fully responsible for his rejection of God. Yep. Good. All right. Well, let's jump into verse 21 then. But again, we need to, we need to keep in mind verse 13 that um, this, the parable of the soils is key to understanding these other parables. Jesus talking to his disciples, he said, if you don't understand this parable, how are you going to understand these other parables? So we need to keep this parable in mind as we look at these other uh, parables in the, the subsequent verses. And then we also need to remember what we just talked about, that uh, these parables were intended to both conceal truth from some and reveal truth to others. There's a, a dual purpose that Jesus had in giving these parables the way that he did. So let's read verses 21 through 25 of Mark chapter 4. Mark 4, 21 says, And he was saying to them, A lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed, is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And we'll stop there for now. So he's talking to them about, he's using this example of a, a lamp and how its purpose isn't to be hidden under a basket, not to be hidden under a, a bed, uh, but it is to bring light, to expose light. Uh, oil was really expensive in these days. Light was valuable. They could just flip on a light switch like we can, right? And to, to take precious, expensive oil and light it and put it under a bed, it makes no sense. Not only is it not going to give light, but it's going to be a waste of money or a waste of resources. Uh, it's to be put out so that it can be used and, and utilized and beneficial to those who are around so it can actually light up a room. And... Um, coming on the, the heels of Jesus talking about the purpose for his parables and how it's to be understood by some and rejected by some, uh, lest his disciples misunderstand and adopt this principle for themselves, Jesus emphasizes their need for clarity. So he's telling them, um, now as, as people who are going out as sowers, as Christians who are sowing the seed, in the last parable, we were focusing on the soils and the four different types of soils and how they would receive the seed. Now in these subsequent parables, he's going to be talking about the, the sower or the believer, the one who's going out, and how he is to, to handle the seed, the word of God. And he's telling them that they need to be clear in, in their message. They're not to adopt the, the same kind of principle that Jesus does in, in giving parables. They're not to seek to conceal or hide truth from those that they're going out to evangelize. They're to speak clearly. They're to communicate clearly. Uh, when, when handling God's word and leave the results to himself. Could I get somebody to look up Matthew 5, 14 through 16? Who's got Matthew 5, 14 through 16? All right, Jerry's going to get that, and I'm going to read Psalm 119, 130 while he's headed there. Psalm 119, 130 says that the unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. So, that verse tells us that these who have been exposed to the light, those who 
come to a knowledge of God. It's not because they have some greater understanding. Um, in fact, they're simple. It's because God has opened up their eyes and revealed this truth to, them, to themselves. God has revealed this truth to them um, and ex- exposed them to the light of his word. And Matthew five fourteen through 16, what does that say? You are the light of the world. Your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Amen. So once again, that is the purpose for the light, for the word of truth. It's not meant to conceal. Though Jesus' parables were meant to conceal, God's word is not meant to conceal. He doesn't want his disciples to adopt this paradigm, but they are to speak clearly, to let their light shine so that their Father in heaven may be glorified. Going down to to verse 22, um, we see that, or we should understand rather, that one day, Philippians 2, 10 through 11, which says that uh, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, both in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And this will be one day realized and manifested, and there will be no question about the legitimacy of each confession. Uh, the, The... demarcation that that Jesus laid out in verses 1 through 20 between the the bad soils and the good soils, it's going to be made clear. It's going to be made obvious one day. Again, verse 22 says that nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been kept secret, but that it would one day come to light, or that it would come to light. So all that is going to be one day uh, understood. It's going to be made clear. There's not going to be any confusion or, or secret. That which is hidden will one day be made clear. And we see two times in verses 23 and 24 uh, another reminder to listen. I told you last week that in this chapter it says that word, listen, ten different times. So we should probably listen. We should probably pay attention. This is what Jesus is uh, emphasizing over and over again. Listen, listen, listen. It says that here in 23 and 24. It says, If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, Take care what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given you besides. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. So, we need to... Well, first of all, verse 25, um, whoever has what he does have shall be taken away from him. We should not understand that as losing our salvation, first of all, right? A lot of people have used that as a, a verse that says that you can lose your salvation. I think it can be natural for us to read that into it. Uh, that's not what it's talking about at all in that verse. So uh, going on from there, we need to realize that how we handle the word or the seed or the light Um, how we handle the truth of God's word that has been given to us, it has eternal lasting consequences. What we do with the word now in this life is going to have consequences that go on throughout eternity. Uh, Let's turn to John chapter 12 and see what we read there from the mouth of Jesus. John chapter 12. Can I get somebody to read those verses, 35 and 36, and then jump down and do 46 through 48? 
Who's got that for us? Yeah. All right. Jesus therefore said to them, For a little while longer, the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, that darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light in order that you may come, or you may become sons of the light. And then what? 46, 48. Yep, 46 and 48. So yeah, in those verses, he's talking about how the light, talking about himself as the light, and how he's going to be leaving. But they need to walk in the light so that the darkness isn't going to overtake them. They need to continue to walk in the light even as the light leaves. Um, but before the light leaves, they need to believe so that they themselves may become children of light. If they don't put their faith in Christ at that point, uh, then they're not going to become sons of light. And then, yes, 46, is that right? 46 through 48. I have come as light into the world that everyone who believes in me may not remain in darkness. Hmm. And if anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I do not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. All right. Those are harsh, sobering words. Maybe not harsh, but sobering. Um, that we will be judged by our exposure to the light, by what we've done with, with Jesus and our understanding of Jesus that he has revealed to us. Um, and I think that's what this verse back in Mark is, is really getting at, that uh, whoever has to him, more shall be given. Whoever does not have, even what he has is going to be taken away from him. That we need to really take care what we listen to. We need to be careful what we listen to. Uh, everyone indeed will reap what he sows. Uh, these verses, 2 Corinthians 9, 6, says, Now I say that he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Or Galatians 6, 7-9 says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. And whatever, is, whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. The one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. Uh, this is the, the three rules of sowing, right? That you always reap what you sow, you reap later than you sow, and you reap more than you sow. You will be given more besides, is uh, what it says. It's not just what you sow, but you'll... Verse 24, by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given to you besides. So you reap what you sow, you reap later than you sow, and you reap more than you sow. And uh, the, the parallel passage over in Luke, in Luke 8.18, and I think it provides a, a little bit of clarity that uh, Mark kind of has in there, but it adds some more clarity. It says that whoever does not have even what he thinks he has will be taken away from him. And so I think this is illustrated by going back to the key parable to unlock all this, remember, from, from last week, the parable of the soils. So the rocky soil that um, got choked out and it didn't bear fruit, 
and the, the soil that didn't take deep roots because there was rock in the soil, the rocky soil, I think that these both represent the man who thinks that he has. Even what he thinks he has shall be taken away from him. So he thinks that he has salvation. He thinks that he has Christ, but even what he thinks he has will be taken away from him. His, um, his understanding is, is not there. Uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are foolishness to him. He cannot even understand them, because they are spiritually appraised. So, uh, once again, what he thinks he has will be taken. But he who has, he will inherit, he will gain even more in, in the following, in the kingdom of God. We'll look at that a little bit more in the, the parable of the mustard seed as well. Um, any other thoughts on verses 21 to 25? All right, uh, let's look at this quote from John Grismack. He says, if a person accepts his proclamation of the kingdom, God will give him a share in his kingdom now, and even more will be added in its future manifestation. But if one rejects his word, the one suffers absolute loss because even the opportunity he has for a share in the kingdom now will someday be taken away from him. So again, what we do with the word of God now is of eternal consequences. Uh, It is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. We don't have a a second chance. We don't have some kind of purgatory uh, where we're going to have an opportunity to to reevaluate, where we're going to have a different message or another message or the same message presented to us a different way. Uh, What we do with God's word now has eternal consequences. All right, well, let's continue on then. Uh, Verses 26 through 29, the the parable of the seed. Will somebody read those verses for us? Mark 4, 26 through 29. Mark is the the only one to record this parable. It's not found in Matthew or Luke or John. And in fact, it's the only unique parable that we find in Mark. Every other parable that we find in Mark is found in either Matthew or in Luke. Uh, So this is the only one of Mark's unique parables. And this parable leaves absolutely no doubt that God alone is the one who is working in salvation. This man, he didn't do anything. He just put the seed in the ground. And it's not as if he was even somehow working on it, just doing a little bit to the seed. No, he went to sleep, and he woke up, and it says that it produced crop by itself. Um, It sprouts and grows how he himself does not even know. Uh, He just knows, hey, this this seems to work. This is what, you know, dad did and grandpa did, and they just told me this is how you do it. You take this seed, and you put it in the ground, and it grows. Um, God is the one who is giving the increase. God is the one who is doing the work. Uh, who's got 1 Corinthians 3, 5 through 8? All right, thank you. Um, we referenced this one last week. It's a, a good one we need to keep in mind. 
Right. What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants through whom you believe, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted Apollos water, but God gave growth. So neither he nor who plants, nor he who waters is anything, but only God gives the growth. You said through nine? Uh, no, that's good. Perfect. So again, the, the parable, or not the parable, the, the point of that passage, uh, talking about Paul and Apollos and all these people watering, it's all about God and what God does. He's the one who gives the increase. Even though Paul is out there laboring and working, and uh, we're going to get one day to 2 Corinthians 11 and talk about everything he went through. He was beaten and shipwrecked and stoned and all these different things. And he says, well, the one who plants, water, one who waters, they're nothing. It's God who gives the increase. God who gives the growth. And Second Corinthians four, five through seven. Somebody got that one? All right, Jerry. For we do not preach ourselves, but hmm. Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bond servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, "Light shall shine out of darkness." is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves. All right. The greatness of the power will be from God, not from ourselves. He's the one who does the work. All we're doing is proclaiming uh, just a, a light shines out of the darkness. We're simple proclaimers. We're just tools in the hands of a mighty, powerful God. He's the one who draws people to himself. He's the one who does the work. Uh, the, the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, right? Not the gospel proclaimer, but the gospel itself is the power of God. And this ought to result in a, a restful, comforted spirit for us who are um, commissioned with the task of going out and proclaiming the truth. We are ambassadors of Christ. We have a responsibility to share the truth, but the results are up to God, uh, which means that we shouldn't become puffed up if we see fruit, if we see somebody who is uh, coming to the Lord, somebody who's understanding, and we see that seed taking root. Uh, we have no reason to be puffed up. But also on the flip side, we have no reason to, to be beat down. We have no reason to be discouraged when... Uh, people reject that, that marvelous truth. That has nothing to do with the, the person who's proclaiming that truth. Well, perhaps we could be proclaiming it more clearly, but ultimately it's God who draws people to himself. Um, he is the one who, who gives the increase. We're just planting, we're just watering, we're just along for the ride. So yes, we have an, an obligation, even a, a commission to share the good news, uh, but we don't need to fret about the results. We leave those in the hands of God. Any other thoughts on the parable of the seed? Yeah, same. It made me think of Psalm 127. He gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Amen. You know, that's having a hard time sleeping. That's a good one that I can <laughs> <laughs> like, I yep. got it. <laughs> Amen. Yeah, every good and perfect gift is from above, isn't it? That's good. Yeah. He makes stuff grow wherever he wants, and yeah, just using just 
from the mineral efforts. We certainly tells us to do the best we can, but remember, it's we don't have anything to do with it. See, sprouting or growing, nothing yep. whatsoever. And yet, we get to be a, a part of that whole process, even though it's not a decisive factor, so to speak. We're not going to, to change God's perfect will, uh, but we, we should count ourselves blessed to be able to proclaim the truth of his gospel, that Jesus came to save sinners, and man, I'm, I'm one of them, and he has saved me by his blood. He has proven his power over death by raising from the dead, and uh, proven the fact that he is God, God on high, and to be able to proclaim that truth is a blessing, and to realize I don't have to worry about um, sending somebody to hell because I'm doing an insufficient job. I'm always going to be insufficient, but God isn't going to let somebody go to hell just because I do a, a poor job in communicating the truth of his gospel. He is sovereign. He is Lord. He's going to save those who who he's going to save. He's not going to lose anybody that has been given to him, uh, John 6. All right, any other thoughts or questions before we move on to the parable of the mustard seed? All right, well, let's do that then. Parable of the mustard seed, starting in verse 30 through 34. And he said, how shall we picture the kingdom of God? Again, all this is relating back to the kingdom of God. Keep that in mind. How shall we picture the kingdom of God? Or by what parable shall we present it? Is it? It is like a mustard seed, which when sown upon the soil, though it is smaller than all the seeds that are upon the soil, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches so that the birds of the air can nest under its shade. With many such parables, he was speaking the word to them, so far as they were able to hear it. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. So, uh, a mustard seed, right? It says here it was uh, the, the smallest of all the soils, uh, of all the soils, of all the seeds. Uh, my eyes caught a different word. It's the smallest of all the seeds. Um, Clearly, it's not uh, an absolute truth across uh, the, the universe, not a universal truth. It's meant for this people in this culture, so it's the smallest seed that they dealt with in, uh, in Israel. And it was a, a common usage of a, a, a parable to, to speak of a mustard seed. We see a couple other examples throughout Scripture. But it is incredibly small. In fact, 750 mustard seeds fit into one single gram. And I didn't know how much a gram was, so a gram, uh, 28 grams rather, is an ounce. So that's a, a ton of tiny little minuscule seeds. Uh, and it says that they eventually produce this big tree, the, the largest tree. Um, let's see, 31. Though it is smaller than all the seeds that are on the soil, Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and forms large branches. And so a, a mustard tree would grow to be about 12 to, to 15 feet in height. And this would take place in just a, a few weeks. And it comes from this tiny little microscopic, maybe not microscopic, small seed, right? Um, but it does multiply. Um, it's a, a multiple of several million. Um, 
and pictures the, the humble beginnings of, of Christianity and the rate at which it grew. Remember that it was just Jesus and these 12 lowly disciples, right? These fishermen, tax collectors, started out with them. And eventually um, they got up to 120 in Acts, but then Christianity exploded from 120 in Acts chapter 1 to uh, billions throughout the, the history of the church. It uh, started off incredibly small and just over time exploded, just like a mustard seed. That's the, the picture that is trying to be communicated in this parable. Um, and we do have to make a distinction between uh, the church or between Christianity and the kingdom. We've been talking about the kingdom uh, all day, and there are a lot of overlaps between the kingdom and between the church. So I want to just diagram that for us here a little bit because there are similarities, there are overlaps, but there are also distinctions. So the kingdom of God is a, a bigger overarching concept than just a church. And the church we can place within the kingdom of God. We as the church, as those who are in Christ, we are certainly a part of the kingdom of God. However, the kingdom of God is not just limited to the church. There are other aspects that extend beyond the church. And we see um, even in the Old Testament that there are Old Testament saints who are within the kingdom. So while we recognize Jesus as king, Old Testament saints, they would recognize God as king. They recognize that they had a coming Messiah who was king and who was going to establish a kingdom. And they would also be considered as part of the kingdom of God. Uh, let me read for you Psalm 10, verses 16 through 18. It says, The Lord is king forever and ever. That Again, that was their understanding. That was their, their conception of the Lord, of Yahweh, of God, that he is king, not just then, but forever and ever. So, uh, continuing on, the Lord is king forever and ever. Nations have perished from his hand, O Lord, or from his land, O Lord. You have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed, so that the man who is on the earth will no longer cause terror. So there again we see this aspect of already, not yet. Even back in the Old Testament, they recognize that Jesus, or not Jesus, um, but that the Lord is their king. They recognize that Jesus was coming uh, to manifest that kingdom. And yet they're still looking forward to the future. Um, it says that you have heard the desires of the humble, past tense, and you will, future, strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to vindicate the orphan and the oppressed, so that the man who is of the earth will no longer cause terror. So it is not as if they, they didn't recognize God as their king. They absolutely did. They were a, a theocracy, and yet they were realizing there is yet a coming kingdom that was going to be established on the earth. Uh, another passage here, and as I read this passage, I want you guys to to listen, right? Just like we're supposed to do in, in Mark 4, to listen and see what it is, or what period of time that Isaiah has in view as we're reading from Isaiah. This is Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. It says, Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the Lord 
the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it and many peoples will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation and never again will they learn war. So what period of time does Isaiah have in view here in these verses? Yes, that, that's when his kingdom is here. Hmm. I really doubt that we're going to be taking our weapons and hammering them into plowshares right now. Yes, yeah, not, not right now, right? Uh, and that wasn't prior to Isaiah's time, right? He wasn't speaking of that in the past tense. That was future. That was speaking of the, the millennial kingdom when Jesus is going to come and he's going to establish his reign on this earth. Again, kind of circling back to this multi-viewed aspect of the kingdom of God, that there's an already not yet aspect, that Jesus is absolutely king, right? He said his kingdom is at hand, his kingdom has come, and you, um, you better believe that Christians are going to bow the knee to Jesus and, and recognize him as King Jesus um, right now. We're not going to wait for that to happen. And yet he's going to come back and he's going to establish his kingdom. He's going to make all things right. And he is going to, um, to unite nations. And there's going to be no war. And there's going to be uh, a lamb and uh, a wolf laying together, right? And kids playing with snakes. And uh, people will die at 100 years old and they'll be considered young. This is going to be taking place one day. And uh, even back in Isaiah's time, they were looking forward to it. So we can include within the, the kingdom of God uh, tribulation saints and millennial saints. There will be people who will come to Christ during the tribulation. Uh, Romans 11 says that all Israel will be saved. That's going to happen during this time period that's not yet come, where they're going to repent. They're going to uh, come to Jesus. And at that point, they'll have their eyes open. It won't be like the days of, of Mark 4, where Jesus is telling them these parables and they're they're seeing and not perceiving, and they're hearing and not understanding. And their eyes will be opened, and they will have full understanding. Jesus will give them that understanding. He will draw them to himself, and they will be welcomed in, ushered into the kingdom um, because of their, their belief in Christ and their submission to him. They'll finally come to that, that point of recognition and understanding, and they will be a part of the kingdom of God. So there is, once again, a... Uh, a distinction between the church and the kingdom. The kingdom of God is more encompassing than just the church. There's a lot of overlap between the two. Uh, however, they are distinct. Distinct and yet similar. Any thoughts on that? Any questions on the relationship between the church and the kingdom? Okay, so I have a question. Yeah. Um, Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. Not not every single Israelite is a, a believer. You're not a believer just based on your uh, ethnicity, right? Uh, I was talking to Brett about this earlier this week. We went to a, a conference and uh, we were talking about, and I can't look for stuff and talk at the same time. Um, we were talking about the, the understanding of who Jesus is. And we went to John 8. Man. Okay, let's start in verse 39 of John 8. So they said to him, Abraham is our father. So they're pretty much saying, we're Jews, right? And Abraham, he's our father. And Jesus said to them, if you are Abraham, Abraham's children, do not do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who is has told you the truth, which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father, they said to him. We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. And so I was telling Britt that because we were looking at the, the incarnation and how Jesus was born uh, from the Holy Spirit um, hovering over Mary, right? And he didn't have an, an earthly father. And they're kind of taking a dig at him here. They're saying, we were born out of fornication. We have a father. Our father is God. Um, they're, they're telling Jesus, you're, just, you're, a, you're a bastard child, right? You don't have a daddy. And he said, well, no, if God were your father, then you would love me. For I proceed forth from God. I come not even from my own initiative, but he has sent me. Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot even hear my word. You are from your father, the devil. You do what you do uh, because of the desires of your father. He is a murderer from the beginning. He's a, a liar and a father of lies. And so uh, he's speaking to Jews there, right? And he's saying that you're not of God. You are from your father, the devil. And so any Jew, Old Testament, New Testament, uh, in the future, who turns to God and understands God for who he is, uh, understands the fact that Jesus is Lord, he will be saved. But those who reject that truth, they will not be saved. But in the, the coming days, in the tribulation, um, there are going to be many Jews who are going to die as a, a result, not just Jews, but everybody who's going to die as a result of the tribulation. And the, the end result is that every Israelite who's going to be left, they will be saved. All Israel will be saved. Again, Romans 11. Um, I don't know if I answered your question. I talked a lot. But. It just it kind of helped me to talk about to you know, a lot of times thinking kingdom, I automatically think Israel. Yeah, Israel is uh, not by nature of being Israel. They're not a part of the kingdom. But there are going to be many Jews who are a part of the kingdom of God because of what they've done with Jesus. Jerry. Well, we have to remember that the kingdom didn't start with Israel. God's kingdom was what he created. Was king initially, mm -hmm. and when we rebelled, then we became rebellious sinners. But even up through the time to Abraham, and before Abraham, core along with Abraham, and outside yep. of Abraham, yep. people became believers in their own understanding of His of God's will. And you have Job. He's, yep. He's not predated. Yeah. Yep. The kingdom is the big circle. We just have to remember that. And Amen. All these other parts there. Just as the church is not equivalent with the kingdom, neither is Israel equivalent with the kingdom. 
uh, but we fit within the, the kingdom of God based on what God has done to us, right? And our response to him. All right. Um, let's see. Going back to Mark 4.32, um, it says that yet when it is sown, this mustard seed, right? It grows up and becomes larger than all the other garden plants and it forms large branches so that the birds of the air can rest under its shade. Now, um, this is absolutely talking about the, the size of the tree, right? That it has large branches, even branches that birds can rest in. There is a, a possibility that it's talking about more than that, though. Uh, we've seen a reference to birds already in this chapter. What was that referring to? The last time we saw a reference to birds. Satan's mouths. Yes, it was speaking about Satan back in verse 4, right? So there's a, a possibility that this is talking about demonic activity that's taking place even within the kingdom. Uh, demonic activity that is uh, hiding within uh, the, the kingdom of God or sheltered within the kingdom of God or even within the, the church of God. So I want to add another bubble to our example here, to our illustration. Uh, perhaps you've seen illustrations similar to this before that there's a distinction between the universal church and the local church. That just because you are a part of a local church that doesn't make you a part of the bride of Christ. It doesn't mean that you are in Christ. So there's a, definitely an overlap there between the universal and the local church, but there's a possibility of being in the local church and not being a believer, not being saved. And so perhaps this is in part what is being referred to here. And again, I think this fits well with the, the illustration going back to the sower and the soils of the, the second and third soil of the soils that are uh, rocky and thorny soils. They present outwardly as if they're believers, but they bear no fruit. Um, so they're Christians in name only. Again, going back to, to Matthew 7, that in the last days, some will come before Jesus and they'll say, Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons? Did we not perform miracles? And he's going to say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. Um, so perhaps that is in view. It also seems like this is a, a quote from Ezekiel. So I'll give you a couple of references. We're not going to go there, but Ezekiel 17.23, uh, also chapter 31 of Ezekiel, and then Daniel 4. In those places, we see a, a picture of a, a tree being raised up and of birds taking refuge under its branches. And there, those birds are identified as nations. So we could see Gentiles here growing up into this big tree, this tree that just started out as a mustard seed, this tree that represents a kingdom. Again, not just being made up of Israel, but also being represented by various nations, by Gentiles that extend beyond just the nation of Israel. I think that's definitely a, a possibility that that is in view here as well. Um, but the, the main point of this parable, again, starts out small and it grows up into much more than uh, what was initially thought that could happen. Uh, the kingdom, like a mustard seed, may appear weak and uh, just apparently insignificant, but appearances can be deceptive, and King Jesus will come back, and he will usher in his kingdom. He will establish his rule and reign forever. Um, I'm going to start off small and, and grow up big. Ephesians 3.20 says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, not our own power, but his power that works within us. 
Uh, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Uh, that is this, the idea of this parable of the kingdom uh, starting from this mustard seed. And going on last couple of verses, 34 and, uh, 33 and 34, says, With many such parables, Jesus was speaking the word to them so far as they were able to hear it. Again, not all of them were able to hear and understand it, right? But as far as they were able to hear it, he was speaking to them. And he did not speak to them without a parable, but he was explaining everything privately to his own disciples. So this method becomes a pattern, not just in this chapter, but throughout the rest of Mark's gospel, throughout the rest of Christ's ministry. He continues to speak in parables to reveal his, his word, these mysteries of the kingdom to his people, to his disciples, to his followers while simultaneously concealing that same truth from those who are on the outside, from those who are not of his fold, um, those who are not drawn in by, by his word. We have a minute or so for any closing thoughts or questions. That's a lot of parables, a lot of information I just threw at you. Uh, remember, it all goes back to that first parable. Um, and they're all related to the kingdom. Kingdom is distinct from the church, distinct from Israel. That should have been a couple of lessons. I kind of feel bad for throwing all that at you guys, but uh, Mark's gospel moves quickly, and we should try to move more quickly than we have been. But All right, let's pray and continue to fellowship. God, we do thank you once again for your word. We thank you for who you are, for your plan that, that you even have a kingdom, that you saw fit to, to create man knowing who we are and, and what we would become. And uh, yet you, you made man and uh, you not only made man, but you have redeemed us by, by your blood. And we thank you for that. We thank you that you are sovereign, that you are all-knowing and uh, that you will will and, and are glorifying yourself through us and despite us and pray that you would continue to do that, that we'd be humbly submissive to you and uh, just lifting up your name evermore. Amen.